Welcome to the Joe Kilgallen Podcast. I am your host, Joe Kilgallen. This podcast is also known as Kilgallen's Pub for you old school listeners. I'd like to start off by thanking the listeners, especially the Patreon subscribers. You guys are amazing. Can't do it without you, especially all the YouTube subscribers. You guys have been great. If you're not subscribing to the YouTube channel, please do so. Check out the videos. Uh, hit that bell icon so you can get notified when new videos are posted, which I post all the time. Uh, a lot of good feedback on last week's episode, so thank you to everyone who's reached out. Really appreciate it. Got a really fun one in store for you today. A comedian I've known basically since I started. Actually, I saw this perfor- this comedian perform about a week before I decided to give it a go. One of the nicest dudes you ever meet in comedy, hardworking guys, got five, five full hours, five comedy albums, tours all over the country, national headliner this guy is. I know you're going to love him, everyone. So without further ado, let's bring on the hilarious Vince Carone. What's up, Vince? What's going on, Joe? How are you, man? I'm great, and I want to thank you for your professional setup. You look good there. Those who are watching on the YouTube will know Vince has his number one comedy albums. Yeah, you know, out in the, right on the wall, looking good. Just my narcissistic decorating behind me, you know. No, I've got a little bit of that too. It's just not in my basement where I record this from. <laughs> <laughs> you got to, man. I, I'm mad at myself for not having my latest one yet. I was gonna. I never printed hard copies of my latest album. And I need to just for the sake of framing it. I don't even care about selling it because I feel like everything's digital now and streaming. Yeah, but, uh, it, it's funny because because uh, you and I did the same thing. We released our latest one right at the like, right at the height of quarantine, like right at the beginning of quarantine, it seemed. And uh, so I did the same thing. I didn't order any physical copies either. But then I was like, ah, I want to frame it. And then getting back on the road this year, I was like, you know what? I'm I'm just printing them. I'm gonna do it. And People are still buying them and they make the same joke. Like, I don't know where I'm going to play it, but they still buy it. So I'm like, all right, I'm doing it. You're absolutely right. I've told some people that too, because I kind of went overboard. I spent way too, I I bought like a thousand copies of my first album in 2015. It was a good, you know, I spent about a thousand dollars, but at the time I had a little money and, um, and it came out to like almost less than a buck a copy or something like that. So it was a little under a grand. And I don't have many left, thankfully, but it took a long time to sell them all. And I feel like most people on the road, when they buy merch off of a comedian, they're just trying to support you. And, you know, they might buy a shirt that they'll never wear or they'll, like you said, with a CD, they'll throw it in their car and forget about it. But I think it's more of like a support type of deal. It totally is. I'd go the shirt route also over an album because I feel like that people are more inclined to buy it. Uh, I just got tired. I don't know how you were. I got tired of lugging shirts around and never having the right size for people. And, you know, now you can get these these little jewel cases, you know, if I'm trying to see if I have one right here, but just these little sleeves, you know, and I can get I can get a hundred of them in like a duffel bag, you know, like real quick and just take it anywhere. So that's what I do. And CDs are so cheap too. I don't mind giving them away sometimes. No, no. I've done shows where I'm like, oh, like I remember doing some shows in Michigan, I want to say, where it was like a, a blizzard was hitting and there was st- still an audience showed up. And I was like, this is crazy. So I said to them, I go, hey, I'm going to give you the CD for free for showing up. But I, I do want a little something. And I asked them all to like follow me on Instagram or or like, you know, like my Facebook. I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was even YouTube channel at the time. And they all showed me on their phone. They go, look, I liked it. And I'm like, all right, cool. There you go. So it was like a little bit of an exchange. Yeah, it's it's a smart way to go. If you if you can grab an email address from somebody, I feel like because it's your route to get them into anything, then you can ask them to subscribe to YouTube and all that later. So I'm like, half the time I'm willing just to give it away. Just show me you signed up for my mailing list, and I'll hand it to you right there. Just walk right out and do it. So like you said, it's such a cheap giveaway that what do I care? You know, my money's made back like the first two weeks on it, and then you know you just give them away. Yeah, absolutely. The email list is clutch because a lot of these social media platforms could come and go. 
you know, they, they yep. fade in popularity and all that, but everyone's always going to have an email. Yeah, that's good. I got to get back on that email train. I, I, one time I brought a clipboard out and then I just kept forgetting or no, one time I brought a clipboard out, had people sign up and then lost the clipboard somehow drinking and forgetting it's like on the bar or something like that. So that was just stupid on my own end. Q, QR codes. Get get business cards made with a QR code on the back, uh, QR code generator.com or something. 60 bucks for the year, you get your own QR codes and you can have it linked to whatever you want. So when they when they hover their phone camera over it, for me, it pulls up my mailing list and then three uh, social media platforms, they can choose whatever one they want. So I just say, do something. You take the QR code. I got a stand that sits on my merch table. They take that or I give them a business card for later. And then if they show me they did something, I'll give them something for free. So easy way to go about it. Forget the clipboard. Forget manual tracking. QR codes are a lifesaver. See, I like this. You're giving some value to any young comics listening right now. We're going to get a little a little promo lesson here from uh, Vince Carone. Dude, you've been doing the road for a long time. And yeah, I'll, tell, I'll tell the listeners, it was, I can't remember, maybe 07, 06. I can't remember exactly the year. But I, I know I was pretty young. And you're only like a little bit older than me. It was at the Improv in Schaumburg. That club had like just opened. I someone handed me like a two for one tickets thing, and I just dropped out of college and I was taking classes at Second City for like yeah. sketch writing and improv. But I didn't really know what the hell I was doing there. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to go check out the stand up. You were on the show and you absolutely destroyed. And uh, and then I saw you at another venue where I remember being like, oh, the comedy's kind of clicky because the other comedians <laughs> were kind of douchey. I felt like they all kind of knew each other but didn't really know you and i, and I remember being like ah, i never want to be like that i want to be cool to everybody so by just being <laughs> you didn't do anything other than just sit there and be yourself but you also gave a great effort too because the second show i went to was kind of poorly attended and everyone phoned in their sets but you so i wonder did you just always have that mentality of i'm going to give it 100 percent on stage every time or did an older comic pass that along to you I'm I'm sure I got the advice somewhere along the way because I know I know for a fact I haven't always put my back into it much like anybody else. I don't know that I've ever phoned it in like intentionally, but I think I think disappointment has led to a, a poorer performance at some point early on. But uh, you know, uh, for me, like like my like you, my my act is based on energy and and a build. Um, I'm not the guy coming out with like five like lines right away that's gonna grab you. Like I have to to build to to get to what I do. And so early on, uh, you know, that really helped me like stay in the moment and just go, if I need if I have to do this, I gotta come out guns blazing. And the second piece was going down to the city because there was a clickiness there. And may, and maybe there really wasn't a clickiness. Maybe I just felt that way. And you know, we all kind of feel that way when we're young, you know. Um uh, I knew that anytime I went in the city, I had to like go over the top with it and, and overly feel like I had to prove myself, whether that was true or not. That's how I felt every time I came down there. So I'm sure if I showed up and I'm sure it was Pressure Cafe that you're talking about. Um, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure if it was there in the show, I remember we had like two or three people like audience members in the crowd. Um, I'm like the only way I can stand out amongst this pack who all knew each other is just come out and give it like it's 100 people at this show as the years have gone on for sure, that's the philosophy now because we've all matured as comedians, but early on, like had to be really intentional to, to try and stay in the zone. Yeah, definitely. And I remember this is how long ago it was. I sent you like a message on MySpace <laughs> saying like, Oh, I appreciated, you know, what you did up there tonight. And you responded with, Hey, don't fucking bother me, kid. 
Okay. Yeah, I don't, I'm sure I didn't say that. Don't, don't look at me. <laughs> Lose this email. <laughs> I'm around, obviously. Uh, no, you're really cool about it. So how old were you when you started? Uh, I started like, I started comedy when I was, uh, when I was 18, I did my first stand up set when I was, uh, 18 and I probably did stand up a handful of times when I was 18 and 19, um, literally probably five or six times between those two years. And then when I was 20, uh, June of 2003, um, I, uh, I went to the barrel of laughs down in Oak Lawn. I don't know if you, uh, if you remember that, um, it was kind of closing up when I was getting going. Yeah. That's what, that's what I thought. So I, I went down there. Because uh, I was only 20, so I couldn't get into many places still that would allow me to to perform. And uh, they they would let me in, which was super nice. And uh, I went there and I I won a contest like my first night there. And then I just remember being like, I'm just I'm going for it. And from that from that day on, like every week I've hit a stage for the past whatever, uh, 18 years, whatever it's been. So that's awesome. To even know you wanted to do it at 18 is crazy to me. I mean, I've talked to some people and they go, oh, well, you start because I started like just before I turned 22. And, you know, I still when I meet 18 year olds, I'm like, stand up. You knew you wanted to do that at that age. So did yeah. you grow up like who were your favorites growing up? Did you watch a lot of them and you're like, oh, I want to do what they did. Yeah, I, I watched a ton of stand up. My my family's just always loved stand up. Nobody in the family had any aspirations of doing it. They just loved to watch it. And uh just were really cool about letting us watch it at a young age. I, you know, I remember watching George Carlin at a very young age and uh, you know, you probably didn't get everything he was saying, but there was something captivating with him. So he was an early favorite. Um, I remember seeing a Robert Schimmel and a Richard Jenny special, maybe in like the mid nineties that I just thought were hysterical. Um, and then uh, my, my parents used to take my sister and I to Vegas every year um, on a, on a family trip, which, which led to a future gambling problem for me, but for a different podcast, and uh, <laughs> I remember going out there and we would always go to, to stand up clubs out there. And so I saw a bunch of people I've never heard of. Um, but one really cool thing is when I was 16, I saw um, Jim Wiggins at the Riviera. You remember Jim Wiggins? I got I was lucky enough to perform with Jim Wiggins at some like bar in McHenry County. Yeah, and was such a nice guy. He the, the greatest Hilarious guy. And, and I remember I remember seeing him at the Riviera. I would have never remembered his name, but when I was 19, um, one of the gigs I did was at the Prairie Rock in uh Schaumburg, Illinois. And uh I was just doing a, a five-minute guest spot and he was the headliner of that show. And just at 19, you know, three years later, it was like the coolest thing ever. Like this guy I saw in Vegas, you know, I'm doing five minutes in front of. And then I ran into him a few times over the years and just couldn't have been a nicer guy. So uh, you know, my experience in stand-up started early. I was always um funny when i was younger but not not class clown funny you know how we are uh you know not not goofy silly funny but more like defense mechanism funny and uh well yeah just a little background for some of the non uh, you know there's uh, most of the people who listen to this i hope aren't comedians it'd be weird if it was just comedians listening to this shit <laughs> um i know it's mostly not but a little inside for for the people who are just fans you know there's two types of kids we think of who go into comedy I talked about this with uh, Marty DeRosa, a friend of ours. Marty says there's the kids at the back of the bus who are like your class clowns who are like, you know, just being wise asses. They're not afraid to get in trouble. And then there's the kids at like the front of the bus who are funny, but they're more like writing stuff down in their notepad and they're like clever, a different yeah. style of funny. Um, I always kind of felt like I was a little bit in between yeah, because I knew my limits. I had friends. I didn't win class clown in high school. And I had friends who worked for the yearbook. So they told me I was like second, maybe tied for second or okay. something. I don't know. I was top three because I knew I had a limit. 
the dude who won had no limit. He didn't give a shit if he got 15 detentions. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to get in trouble at home for a couple extra laughs from these dickheads. You know what yeah. I mean? That was just my <laughs> mindset. Like I'll make them laugh after school. I'm not getting in trouble. So I'm sure you probably had that too. Really? Like, I don't want to get in trouble. I, w- I was actually the other way. Like only, only it wasn't, I was never class clownish. I was never cool enough to be class clownish, but I was, I was very, very quick witted. And, see, I was uh, Ferris Bueller, man. I was cool as fuck. So, oh yeah, I, no, I, the popularity <laughs> was not a it was not in the cards for me in high school. Uh, I wasn't the loser. I was right in the middle, which is actually the worst spot to be because then you you're caught between wanting to be cool, but I don't want to be a complete loser, and you're kind of in this middle ground. But uh, it's good, you point. know. It's it's like middle class, right? Like, oh, I want to be rich, but I hope I don't get poor. It's kind of like the same mentality, you know. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, but I was always very quick witted, and I, 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 that was like my way of fitting in was was to be the smartass, was to talk back to the teacher. These aren't like good things that people should do, but that's what I did, and I was I was willing to take whatever came with it at home if it got the laugh from people. And so I I spent a lot of time in Saturday detention and stuff like that. So, but uh, probably my uh, the back half of my junior year of high school. Um, I remember I vividly, I remember watching, uh, George Carlin's, you are all diseased and Richard Jenny's a uh, good Catholic boy specials. And I remember I transcribed both of their specials out on a computer. I just listened to the jokes. And I typed them out and I don't know what made me do it, but I typed out the whole hour for both of them. And I kind of just started reading the structure and just understanding like, oh, there's like a, there's an art form here. There's a, there's a rhythm. There's, there's some science that's going into this. And like I would, I would, I would always repeat other comedians' bits. Like I'm sure a lot of us did growing up, and get the laughs. And you kind of knew the timing because some people can't tell a joke for shit, right? Yeah. But when you when you can do another comedian's joke and you got the timing and the inflections, it made you kind of feel like it was yours. And so, uh, in in transcribing their material and reading it back, I, I started going, I think I could do this. And so the back half of my junior year, I started just writing, and I wrote for about you know probably a year and a half or two years before I finally got up on stage when I was 18. That's awesome. That's yeah. I I didn't, you know, I wasn't as I was a fan. It's weird. See, comedians are so like um compulsive, I think the word might be. No doubt. Right? Because I there were things that I thought I was a fan of and then right. I met and then I got into the world of comedy and met comedians and I'm like, "Oh, maybe I'm not a fan at all." Like I thought I was. Yeah. I remember at one point in my life thinking I was a movie buff. And then I started talking to comedians and they're talking about like obscure directors <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" And yeah. I'm like, I don't, I didn't realize that there were people out there who were so into movies that they would read the credits and be like, oh, that guy was also uh, the cinematographer on this movie. And I'm like, I just thought the movie was funny. I didn't feel like you guys go to an extreme with it. So yeah, as far as watching specials and stuff like that, I kind of watched, um, yeah, let's see some late night sets here or there. They remember liking. And when I was a really little kid, uh, Sunday nights on Fox, they had like an evening at the improv, I think it was called. That's right, I remember yeah. seeing Tim Allen on that, and then a few months later, uh, Home Improvement like aired, like it like debuted, and I remember being like, "Oh, this is the guy we saw with the tools and stuff like that." When I was like seven or eight or something yeah, like that, so really I kind good, of yeah. stand up was always like a top five dream job. But I think when I was like seventeen, eighteen, like when a lot of our peers were really diving into comedy specials and figuring it out, I still thought, you know what? I'm going to be a baseball player still, even though I was about sure. to get cut from the team. I was like, I still had those delusions. I did want, if I could jump back only because this came up on Twitter, you mentioned Jim Wiggins and a lot of listeners, you might not know who Jim Wiggins is. I encourage you 
when this podcast is over, of course, to YouTube Jim Wiggins. He's been on the Tonight Show. He wrote for wrote for wrote with um, why am I blanking? Uh, George Carlin, like yeah. way back in the day, and was just a really awesome guy. And got screwed on Last Comic Standing. It was a big deal. Like uh, Last Comic Standing season two, I want to say, when that show still really hadn't taken off as like the big hit. Because when that yeah. show came out, I think they were trying to act like, oh, this will be American Idol for comedy. Yeah, and, they, and Which, people were already pre-picked of who was going to go the distance and, and be in that house in the early shows. Later on, it changed formats. But what you're talking about was like Drew Carey and the rest of the judges basically like like turned their back on on television when when Jim Wiggins got cut and kind of like pulled the curtain back. And we're like, what are you talking about? We thought he was the best guy here. How did he just get like who cut him? Basically, it's kind of like it was like the sentiment there, right? Exactly. That's exactly what happened. All the judges loved him. All the, the audiences and the comedians loved him. But the network was like, this guy is 70 and doesn't like, you know, he wasn't a cool looking 70 year old. He's not looking like like Harrison Ford's 70 right now. You know what I mean? He yeah. he looked like oh, he's knocking on heaven's door a little bit. You know, I love Jim and I, I think he did die a few years after that. He did. But it was still it was bullshit because he deserved it. And that was what killed me about Last Comic Standing. I actually went out there with a couple comedians, uh, Dean Carlson and Bradley Fohas, when we were maybe a year or so in. It was one of those things where it's like, F it. We got nothing to do. Let's just go check it out. We're not going to win. We're not going to get yeah. picked, but for the experience. And it was, they didn't do Chicago auditions that year for what reason nobody knew at the time. So we drove all the way out to Minneapolis in minus 20 degree weather. Yeah. I still never forget. We got a tent and try to stay in the tent because you had to get like spots in line. And there were so many people in line. And Bill Bellamy like knocked on our tent and it was like, hey, look at these guys. They got a tent. And I'm like, I've got frostbite. This isn't worth it, you know? Yeah. And, then we found out that it was completely rigged because there were Chicago comedians that we knew who, when we were in line, got out of a car and walked right into the building. Yep. Like Jared Logan, who's a friend of mine. And um, I can't remember who else, maybe Kumail or someone. And I'm like, oh, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, well, our managers and agents just got us a spot. So we didn't have to wait in line and we do this. And, yep. and then you're like, oh, this isn't they're trying to make it seem like anyone off the street could be the next big thing. But it's completely rigged. They yeah. already have it set up who they like. You know what I mean? They work with different agencies where, and that's like, that's still in comedy. I, I really wish the average person knew that it's not a meritocracy. And so much of what you think is, because I know a lot of people are like, stamp comedy. I think so much of what I see is garbage. I'm like, well, I mean, some of it is garbage because it gets pushed to the top. It's the same way with the radio. How much yeah. crap you hear over and over again. That's terrible. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's like anything in life who, you know, gets you further, uh, and we all probably run the same thing you did in 2004. Jim Flanagan, myself, and a few others uh, went down to, down to Zanies in Chicago, and uh, we waited in line in January. And I think it was negative four was the high that day. And uh, we went down there at five in the morning, got in line. We're like you know 50th in line at five in the morning. Uh, doors aren't even open at like 11 or something like that. And I remember we sat out there just like you said, just freezing. And they're coming by with the camera. And just talk because they what they want they want that showmanship for the for the, the viewing audience at home to watch comedians shivering and freezing, and uh, because because what happened was like around like maybe nine thirty or something if we waited like you know four or five hours they came by and gave everybody a call time to come back, and yeah. so it's like you could have done that at five o'clock in the morning you just waited to get the cameras to get the footage you wanted of course and then we all you know thought out came back and you know all got turned down right away and. Um, I just remember they had two judges. They both had to agree immediately or you were out. And uh, I don't know how long you got. We got 30 seconds. I think it was. And I told two jokes. 
And the one guy's like, I like him. The other guy goes, I don't. They're like, all right, see you, Vince. And I was out. I got one minute. And I felt bad Maybe because the two other comics I was with, I, I got advanced to like a next stage. It was okay. weird. They did like four stages. So the first stage, they broke everyone into groups of six. So I knew Bradley and Dean, and I didn't know the other three comics. And then we were all around a table, and it was like one producer, like woman. And she came up. And she's like, everyone's going to do one minute. Go. Point it at like the first guy. And wow. then you do a minute, which for a minute of stand up is hard for. I got to imagine getting two jokes in 30 seconds was crazy for you. I don't know how you were at the time, but I know now you're more of a storyteller and you like to build. I'm yeah. in the same mold. I've got very few jokes that are a minute yeah, long. I can stand on their own. Yeah. I, yeah. I still, I told half of one joke that luckily worked enough where I got to do the next thing. And I felt bad because the other two guys just had to wait for me. And the next thing was, like almost that real world confessional type thing where I was like in a photo booth and I'm hearing a voice that I can't see. I didn't know who the heck the guy was asking the questions. And his first question was like, so what are you doing in Minneapolis? And I'm like, I'm here for the last comic standing. Am I supposed to make this funny? Cause this is a real dipshit question. Yeah. And, and then he asked me like one more question and then he was like, okay. And then I'm, I never heard of anything. So apparently I wasn't cool enough for uh. that little dumb interview because then the third thing after that was you would have been like on the actual stage I think for like a couple other judges. And then if you pass that, then there was like a showcase that night. And it's just, I don't know. Like I usually root for anything stand-up comedy related because I believe a rising tide lifts all boats. Anything yep. that puts more of a spotlight on stand-up, I'm a huge fan of. But for some reason, that show, after seeing that and then what they did to Jim Wiggins, I was like, I hope it fails. I just never wanted, I never rooted for it. And I'm like, Kevin Bozeman did great in it the one year, Michael Palsek, who are guys that we both know and love. And of course, I was rooting for them. But sure. then part of me is just like, I hate this thing. I hate what it's pretending to be. I don't think it's even good for stand up comedy. Yeah, it was, it was a tough sell. I, I don't like the, after I had that experience, I, I just kind of wrote off all cattle call auditions from that point. And, you know, I'm sure some of it was ego, but other, it just, it was also like, I, I don't, I've never liked to song and dance and that may be a hindrance in my career and that's fine. I can accept that if it is, but I've just never liked to song and dance for somebody like that. And I, I like to go in do what I do. Like I, I got into stand up to make people laugh and some of that shit was just like, what, what am I doing here? Like I, I, I don't even know what I would have done had I advanced, especially I was only a few years in, I don't even know what I would have done had somehow the, the stars aligned and I moved on. I, that'd have been the most embarrassing thing for me. It was way better that it ended how it did. And, I got to be like, yeah, I never want to do this again. So, yeah, I never watched it in the later years. I I rooted for uh, for Mike and Kevin, but I never watched it when they were on. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's another thing too, though. Having that self awareness is is very important in any anything you do in life, right? Because I've I've often thought too, like, why do I want this thing? Oh, I want this yeah. thing because I think I'm supposed to want this thing, you know. And then I remember talking to like friends who are do have you know regular jobs and stuff like that, and they're like. Hey man, you should get on last comic standing. And I remember saying to them, like, I don't want to. Yeah. And then they give you a look like, come on, why wouldn't you want to? And I'm like, because I don't, that's, I, I see how I've seen behind the curtain and I, I don't like it. I just think it's dumb. Yeah. And it's such a weird thing to explain to people. Like, I, I don't, never wanted to be on SNL. Um, you know, there's just certain things where people don't understand that. And that's why I've always respected the hell out of you, Vince, because you're a dude who has this thing where it's like, I love stand up. I can tell you genuinely love the hell out of stand up. You've, you've put out your own albums, you've, you've built up your own audience and you keep going for it and, and dude, doing the road, um, can be really rewarding and it's a blast. I love doing it, but there is just craziness out there. What's like the most insane thing you've countered on the road? 
Jeez. I know it's uh, a loaded question, man. Yeah, it's a loaded question. Like, I don't know. I don't know what like the most insane thing. I, there's probably a collection of of things over the years. Uh, I remember early on, uh, some 80 year old woman uh, woman charged the stage with a fork and stabbed it in my leg um, after I after she heckled me and I slammed her back. Now, mind you, she was 80. So when I say charged the stage and stabbed, you know, slammed it in my leg, like I'm using that very loosely here. But uh, and I just remember the audience just 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 let her go with it. Um, I had a guy uh, pull out a gun on me one time uh, during a heckle. Uh, I, I heckled, he heckled and I, and I, I just leveled him. It was beautiful. And he stood up and he just, he pulled a gun and, uh, the whole, the whole room just like froze and he's like, I'm just kidding, man. And then he put it away and he sat back down and he sat there the rest of the show. <laughs> Hold just, on. Where, where was this though? Uh, this was, uh, this was at the diversity bowl in Chicago. Oh, whoa. Okay. I was thinking maybe you're going to be like, this was in Fayetteville, Arkansas or something. No, you know, and I, right here I am typecasting Arkansas. Sorry, our, our Kansas listeners. Um, damn, dude, that's crazy. And the whole audience was just like, okay, did yeah, you just, kill after that? Did, did you rebound? No, no, I didn't rebound. I, uh, I made some jokes. Like I, I made some jokes about like, you know, if, if I die at a bowling alley on a Tuesday night, my life sucked anyway, pull the trigger, like turn my back to him. And like, people kind of like laughed, like awkwardly, like, you know, kind of how I was probably delivering it very awkwardly because I still had like 10 more minutes of my set. And, uh, you know, you would think someone would give me the light or somebody would call the cops and get this guy out of the room. Uh, nope, just left him in there. And then uh, Mark Fahey, remember Mark Fahey? Yeah. Um, uh, I love Mark. I haven't seen him in a long time, but uh, Mark juggled chainsaws, right? You juggle chainsaws. He would light a bowling ball on fire with steak knives in it and kick it from his foot and land it on his head and balance it, which... To anybody listening, this all sounds like a lie, but he was on America's Got Talent. You can go watch that on YouTube as well. Uh, he was on, he was headlining that show. And at the end, he juggles machetes as part of one of his pieces. And he's like, I need a volunteer from the crowd. And who does he pick but the guy with the gun and hands him the machete. So the guy turns with the machete at me and like pretends to swing. He's like, I'm just kidding. It's so like in one night I had a gun on me and a machete kind of waved at my face. And <laughs> it's, just, it's just a Tuesday in Chicago. I'm not even on the road at that point, you know? So, uh, oh, yeah, the road's, the road's been you know, fist fights. You know, uh, shit like that. A guy, you know, slammed a beer bottle, broke it and held it up at me in uh, Cedar Rapids at Penguins, you know, and then security. I mean, was right there and just grabbed him and just chucked him right out the door, which was awesome. Real quick. But, that's a pretty boss move, though. The whole break. And I've always wanted to shatter a bottle and be like, bam, there's yeah. that great scene in Happy Gilmore when Shooter McGavin says something to him. He's like, oh, really? Yeah. And he just breaks the bottle and he's like, let's go right now. Yeah. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, he's going to help me find the other end of this bottle. Oh, there's some, <laughs> yeah. there's some. Yeah, that's a but pretty it, cool move. Although it's it, frightening if you're receiving it. Well, it was just, and it was just like that. I mean, one hit, boom, he, like, like he'd done it before. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, bro. He's, yeah, so that's the road. Dude, yeah, man. Uh, the Real quick, back to the old lady with the fork. Did the fork penetrate your leg? No, everybody asks that piece. No, no, she did. It didn't. Uh, it was it was really weird because uh, she was like so far. It was like a like a. What did you say? Uh, oh, I said I guess it doesn't matter how slow you charge the stage; it's still considered charging the stage. Oh, you mean what did I say <laughs> to get her to come up and do that? Yeah, I have I have literally no clue. It wasn't anything overly bad. I was only two years in, so I couldn't have had anything that great. But the room was so long; it was long. It was kind of like uh, Zany Chicago, but longer and not wide. And she was all the way in the back. So she got up and you hear like the fork drag off the plate and she just walks and like much like everybody else in the room, we're all just watching her because we're like, what the hell is she doing? You know, and the stage was up high. So she was probably at my knee level with her head 
when she got up there and she's just sitting there and then she just just like just tried to poke it through my leg and uh i was like what the fuck was that you know and again nobody stops it nobody <laughs> says anything she just walks back and sits back down and you're just stuck dealing with that you know now now go try and make people laugh clown it's crazy and where was this one where did that happen that was down in uh kankakee or bradley illinois one of the one of those two was called brandon casey's um uh do you know todd thomas uh no uh uh very funny guy uh he uh he moved away for a while he's back in chicago now but he uh he used to book that room like long long time ago so this is probably like 2005 ish that oh, okay yeah. cool cool the craziest i had was at um a bar called dukes in crystal lake illinois right off the metro stop up there i did a show with uh mike stanley and this guy dustin kaufman i want to say who i think owns the kansas city comedy club i believe and it was nuts because I was hosting, like I said, and it was a small crowd. I think there was like one table of five and a table of like three and then one like drunk guy literally sleeping as the show was starting. Apparently, there was a big like Christmas bar crawl, Christmas sweater bar crawl thing <laughs> happening. And I don't know. There was like a good amount of snow on the ground. So who knows? And I'm up there, you know, just starting the show. And I did some joke about, you know, being an Irish guy from Chicago or something. And I don't know what they heard, but this one table of three just starts like yelling shit and calling me like a liar or something. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, what, what do you think? I'm not saying I am what I am or something. Like, are you guys, well, you know, I don't know. It's not like they were from Ireland. I didn't hear an accent or anything. Right. Right. But then uh, 30 seconds later, a dude who was at the bar comes in and they like get cl close to the stage and they start talking shit. And then the guy says, you know, say those jokes in Chicago and see what happens to you. Now, for the listeners, Crystal Lake's about 45 minutes to an hour northwest of the city. <laughs> so I don't know if this guy was from Chicago and then moved out to this far suburb and then thought he was talking to like a suburbanite or someone who's just a traveling comedian. But I'm pretty damn Chicago. So when yeah. someone's like, go to Chicago and say that shit, I literally came back with, motherfucker, I am Chicago. Which I felt was very like Entourage was a popular show at the time. So I felt like I was like, I am Queens Boulevard. Like yeah, I yeah, kind of yeah. had that. Then the drunk dude who had his head down, who was not part of anything, gets up and jumped on stage, grabbed the mic stand and went to swing it at me. Oh. Luckily, I took a step to the side, but grabbed his shirt and kind of olayed him off the stage. They had one of those huge speakers on top of a tall tripod. And he like hugged it to break his fall and hugged on the way down. <laughs> and was like out for like 25 seconds. I remember being oh. like, okay, this dude's pass, passed out. He knocked himself out. Yeah. And the whole time, again, like both of your uh, things that you had happened to you, both of your conflicts, nobody's doing anything. And I remember at one point looking like, does anyone work here? And finally <laughs> they come in and like the manager at the time, this girl named Rachel, who I became good friends with. I like will talk to her every now and then and say like, what's up? You know, um, and it was funny because like she became friends with me and Mike Stanley. And I remember asking, I think uh, I sent her a message like a few days later because, you know, Facebook friend request and all that. Yeah. I was like, oh, you work at the bar. I go, let me ask you this. Have you guys still been talking about that incident? And she's like, oh, nonstop. Yeah. That's what everyone's been talking about for like the last like week or however long. And they're like, we want you to come back here and perform again. We thought like that was crazy. And you handled that so well. And um, I've been giving the staff shit because like nobody had like she was the one that was trying to break it up at first. It was crazy. Right. She was cool as hell. But then the funny thing is they kicked those people out, of course. I'm picking up the microphone thinking, all right, this this show's not going to happen now because now there's only four or five people here. 
And it's just, how, how do you recover from that? Yeah. And as I'm picking up the microphone, I had this look on my face that I could tell the one table who came here for the show, they, they could tell. Because the one guy was like, don't do it, man. And then the girl next to him was like, come on, do a show. Do a sh-. They must have just read my face. They knew I was going to call yeah. it. And I'm like, wait, you guys want a show still? And they're like, fuck yeah, we want a show. I'm like, you guys want, ah, we'll do a show. They have a big window to the side. I'm seeing these people being kicked out, kind of being like escorted. And I see them and I start like waving my middle finger. You know, I mentioned the Irish thing. So I'm doing like a fake Irish jig, which my wife, who's a real Irish dancer, hates when people try to do a jig when they don't know how to. (laughs) And I was just like talking so much shit. The rest of the show, though, kind of crappy because the the one table that stayed couldn't stop texting people. You wouldn't believe what I just saw. Oh, yeah. And I called it on them. I go, let me guess. You're texting all your friends going, you wouldn't believe what just happened to Dukes. And they're like, yeah, that's what we were doing. Like, yeah, right. it, it's a, it's a tough one to recover from, man. Like, because nothing nothing can beat what they just saw at that point. You know, like nothing nothing's nothing's gonna top it. Like they just saw, they just saw like the most unique part of any comedy show because that doesn't happen. You know, so what's gonna top it? Like, you know, pre, oh, here's some stuff I thought of on the way. Now, like you you're better off probably just putting the mic down and just having a conversation with them for a half hour and just being real versus trying to like again put on the show for them like. You know, nothing's going to top it at that point. But where, where is everybody when this shit happens? Like the, the thing is, nobody's prepared for that because that's not a normal part of comedy. But yet, if you do the road long enough and, and we say the road and every story we've told is in Illinois. But like this shit happens on the road, too. If you do it long enough, you're, you're bound to encounter some of the craziest shit you've ever seen. The weirdest situation of people puking all over the showroom right in the middle of a show. Someone had a heart attack in the middle of a show, you know, and the, and the, the show must go on. You know what I mean? Like. What are, you, what are you supposed to do? I did a show in, jeez, I want to say Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, which has got a great comedy club there, the Comedy Catch, where in like the front or second row, basically, this woman started making a weird sound. And I was about to make fun of her laugh because it was like a weird thing. And then I noticed she was having a seizure. Oh, no. And part of her seizure was making this weird sound. And I'm like, oh, my God, is she okay? Everybody's she all right? And the guy who was with her was like, it's okay. It'll pass. And he like looked at me like, keep going, man. I'm enjoying this. I'm like, dude, I can't. Like, are you sure? And she wasn't okay. He like then realized, and then someone came over to help, and then they had to get an ambulance. Oh. Um, which I think that actually happened to me at the comedy bar too in downtown Chicago. But I remember when it happened in Chattanooga, the guy was so nonchalant, like, ah, she does this. Come on, let's go. What's what's your next bit, pal? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, at the like, improv I was at the improv once watching David Tell uh with my dad. Whenever David Tell would come, he's one of my dad's favorites. So I always I always buy the tickets at the improv and just treat it like, hey, man, we're going as complete fans tonight. You know, we're not we're not I don't know, interested in getting any stage time. Let's just go watch. And this is years back now. And uh, he was doing his bit. Some woman up front was like she wasn't heckling. I mean, she was, but she wasn't saying anything mean. She was just being annoying. Like she was trying to talk to him. And David tells just like the funniest guy with like comebacks. And, you know, and uh, and he ended up like being like, what are you drinking? And she said, like whiskey. So he ordered her like a double shot. You know, and, and she took that and she was already smashed. And so like a little while later, like she stands up and she's like wobbly. And uh, and he like starts like ripping on her and she she's front row and she goes to you know take that turn up the aisle. And she just like her 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 ankle twists and she just like bites it. I mean, just like wails the floor and like the whole showroom just like stops. And like David Tell drops the mic, jumps off stage, like helps her up. You know, and he's like, are you OK? Because I'm sure at that point he's also thinking I'm the one who got her the fucking two shots of whiskey, <laughs> you know, at this point. <laughs> Let's make sure she's OK. And um, 
and she gets up and she's humiliated and she goes to the bathroom on her own. Like 500 people in the crowd are just watching her walk down that aisle, the walk of shame. And David Tell gets back up on stage and he like looks at her boyfriend. He's like, hey, like, dude, like, and he, and he was like, you, you would think like he'd start ripping into her. And he wasn't. He was like very empathetic. He's like, hey, man, like you you get up and go check on your girl. And the guy was like, no, nah, she's OK. And he's like, no, no, man, like, I'm, I'm not joking. Like, go, go check on your girl, man. Go make sure. And he's like, no, nah, she's all right. And Dave goes, you must have a huge cock, man. You know, <laughs> so he says back to him, you know, and, and, he, and he just tore into that guy about it. But uh, yeah, just this weird shit that happens, you know, and you know, and David Tell has to go finish a show after that, you know, and then she has to come back and he has to talk to her again. And it's just how these shows go. Yeah. I mean, comedy clubs are built to sell alcohol, so you're going to get a lot of strangeness. Yep. You know, that's why they don't sell booze at plays. They expect people to behave a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. Man. Uh, dude. So, you know, you, we did a show uh, a couple weeks ago at the G man tavern and, you know, catching up with you after the show was great, dude. I was having such a blast talking with you and Danny Callis Callis. And you told one of the craziest stories, man. Um, as a fellow dad, very scary stuff. Uh, you wait, I think it happened before you had kids though, right? Yeah. Before I had kids, which be thankful for. We'll also be thankful. You're fine. Vince told uh, a little bit of a health scare. If you wouldn't mind, like telling it again because I thought it was just so insane that you went through all that and uh, and and kept a good attitude through the process. Yeah, th there's. A, I'll give you a, a brief version. You could probe for anywhere you want me to go dive deeper. But it's a long story, so I'll give you a quicker version. But uh, basically, back in uh, back in November of 2012, um, I started feeling just just sick one day, like anybody would, just like a little rundown. Something doesn't feel right. And uh, for uh, context, I turned 30 in September of 2012. I got married in October of 2012. This is a month later. And uh, I'm like, I, I just, I'm feeling weird. And I was around somebody recently that had mono. Um, and I didn't, I didn't kiss this person or anything, but it was just, I was around them. So I was like, kind of, I mean, I've never been really, I was like falling asleep, all, like just sleeping all day. I'm like, something's not right. Maybe I got mono. And uh, I, uh, I fell asleep at uh, Thanksgiving uh, dinner. And my parents, I just fell asleep at the table. Just could have been the out. turkey, though. Could have been the turkey, <laughs> and uh, and then I ended up just going to the couch and just you know passing out. And uh, I went to the doctor, and uh, he's like, "Ah, you don't have mono, blah blah." blah. He's like, "But you know, uh, we'll do some more blood work and whatever." And like two days later, he calls me, and he's like, "Hey, uh, um, get your blood work back. I want you to go see an oncologist." And I was like, That's "Scary." And it's scary. And I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe whatever. I'm like, I don't even overly know what that is. Like, yeah, I, I, I thought I knew, but it just seemed like a, seemed like far fetched. So I'm like, man, I don't know. So I look it up. I'm like, oh, an oncologist, cancer. Okay. And uh, it, it explains like my white blood cell count is low and that could be due to a number of viruses. So don't panic, but just go. And so I go to the oncologist with my wife. And in the meantime, I actually started feeling slightly better. So I'm like, okay, not as tired. Maybe it was just, someone was just passing. Go in there and uh, we sit down and the oncologist comes in like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, well, I've been falling asleep like crazy. I'm feeling just like this weird you know, fatigue. And I'm like, uh, and then, oh, the past few nights, I've just been like, like waking up like you could wring out my sheets and my clothes, like just completely like drenched. Like I jumped in a pool of sweat and uh, night sweats, obviously, is what they're called, but uh, didn't know the terminology or anything. And he's like, OK. And uh, he starts just kind of like poking and prodding and he, and he gets to here on my neck. And he like grabs his neck and he he does like one of these like a bunch of times. And then he feels the other side of my neck and he's like, I'll be back. And he leaves. And uh, so I put my hand up my neck and I've got this huge like rock hard lump in my neck. And I just didn't hurt. So I didn't know it was there. But if I turned, you could actually see it like coming out. And it's like, I don't even know how I didn't notice it. Whoa. And uh, so then you, you're starting to, you know, 
you know, add, add up the, the math here. And my wife and I are like looking up like, okay, night sweats, fatigue, lump in neck, oncologist. And it's like uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma is like popping up amongst a, a variety of other cancers. And uh, real quick, he, though, that WebMD will scare the hell out of people. Yeah, it's, it's not good to do like it. it and that's what he did. He came back and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking it up. He's like, stop looking it up. Just ask me what you want to ask me. Don't look stuff up. And I'm like, okay, man. Well, <laughs> like, uh, do I have cancer? Like, and he's like, uh, you know, we have to run, uh, we have to get a biopsy. He's like, but, uh, you know, just to be completely honest, like you're showing all the signs of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he explains what that is versus like non-Hodgkin's. And, you know, it, it, if you're comparing the two, Hodgkin's is the better one. Uh, I guess it's the more there is the, a good Hodgkins. Yeah, yeah there's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where he's like, I thought yeah. you had the good Hodgkins. Never yeah, like, right. no good Hodgkins. And they and they sound backwards. It's like fiction and nonfiction. They sound like the opposites of each other. But yeah, Hodgkins is the better of the two if you have to get one. And uh, so he uh, he's like, he, but he said the same thing, Vince. It's it's most likely a virus. You're 30 years old. It's most likely a virus. But we'll do a you know do a biopsy, which is not like a it, it's a it's invasive. Like, it's not like, uh, just, you know, go and get a shot. Like, you know, they, they put you out, it's a surgery and they, they cut like, you know, you know, a couple inches into my neck, like a line and they have to take out, you know, um, uh, lymph nodes. And, uh, so afterwards, you know, I'm all patched up and they call a few days later and they're like, Hey, we, uh, we, we did, we didn't find any cancer in there, but we didn't find any, like, we didn't, that doesn't mean you don't have it. That means we, we didn't get enough of what we needed. We have to do that same procedure again. And so they had to go right next to it like like a week later and do another one now. And uh, same thing. Hey, it's inconclusive. And they explained it to me like trying to find a you know, cancer cell is like trying to find like a needle in a haystack. Like sometimes for some some people, it's right away. Some people, it's not. Um, they're like, Let, we're going to do um, they did a CAT scan. And then they're like, we're going to do a PET scan, which you, you drink this like barium liquid and it lights up your body on like an X-ray. Uh, I don't know all the you know the specifics, but that's my basic understanding of it. And it comes back and uh, <clears throat> all four regions of mine are like are like lit up like a Christmas tree. So it's like, you know, up here in my chest, in my abdomen, my pelvic region. And so uh, they, they call back and they're like, you know, Vince, it's it's all all four spots like which they start explaining to me. Like once once uh, once you have like uh, like I forget what it's called, but like once there's like lymph nodes like lighten up on the on the thing like above and below your waist it becomes stage three or four, like above the waist is stage one or two. But if it hits below the waist, you're automatically in stage three or four. And so now they're telling me we think it's like stage three or four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so you're like, oh, fuck. And I'm like, what, what do you, when you say you think like, what does this mean? And he's like, Vince, if I didn't have to diagnose this specifically, I'd be starting you on chemo today. He's wow. like, but legally, I have to find it first. So they ran a bone marrow biopsy on me right after that. Oh, um God. And that came back negative. So we knew stage four was off the table, which was good. So now we're thinking it's stage three because it's still below uh, the waistline. And so uh, maybe it's your abdomen. I can't remember where the, the, the barrier is. But uh, then they were like, uh, we have to we have to do like a bronchoscopy or something like that, where they go down your throat and get your lymph nodes out that way. And uh, so they did. They put you under again. That's another surgery. So they, they did that inconclusive. And so, mind you, this started right before Thanksgiving. I'm um, now the timeline is right before New Year's Eve, and uh, and I'm like, you know, I'm like losing weight. I'm like, and, and and I'm feeling like sick now. Like it's it's. I'm sure it's a lot mental, but also sure, my, yeah. My body is like whatever's happening to me is running down, and so uh, right after the right after New Year's, I got uh, <clears throat> pneumonia, 
in both lungs just because of this illness was like affecting my lungs. And so I had like a huge mass over my left lung and uh, to where they're like testing for like lung cancer and everything. So um, I wind up in the hospital with like a 105 degree fever. And once I got admitted to the hospital for that, they uh, they couldn't. Well, they yeah, technically they can't let me go until they figure out this other piece now. So now that I'm in the hospital system, I'm staying in the hospital. And so it was uh, the entire month of January. I stayed in the hospital. But um, you want me to tell the, the second part about the second misdiagnosis? Yeah, because this, this part is absolutely fucking crazy to me. This so, whole part of this. So I'm, I'm in this hospital locally where, where I live in the suburbs. And, uh, you know, I'm in uh, I'm in isolation. So, uh, you know, people that come to see me have to wear masks and everything like that because nobody they there could be an infectious disease, could be anything that I have. And uh, <clears throat> they're they're filling me up with like Norco every day. And so, like, I'm just like I'm just like basically stoned out of my mind every day. Just like I'm down like 20 some pounds, just rotting away in a hospital bed like every day. Like and you're they, pretty skinny guy as it is, too. Yeah, so pretty thin as it is. And so I'm, I'm down to like 150 pounds or something, whatever it is now at that point. And they're, they're coming in like they come. The doctors come in once a day, give you the update for the day and then they're gone. So you basically are just sitting there for like another you know, 23 hours and 50 minutes waiting for them to find some miracle. And I'm getting ultrasounds and I'm getting every test under the under the sun. And then they uh, they they were going to do this final uh, surgery on me, which would be right here, right in the center of my throat. where They would cut me open here and go right into my lung that way, which was different than going down my throat, I guess. And this was like the most like accurate way to do it it's just the one they don't want to have to do and uh so this is uh done by a thoracic surgeon so the night before the surgery schedule the thoracic surgeon comes in and uh, my mom's in the room with me and uh and he comes up to me the thoracic surgeon he explains what the procedure is he goes but man like i i've looked at your charts and uh it doesn't look like hodgkins to me and my mom and i are like you know briefly relieved and uh and he goes the, the more i looked at it it like you, you, you know, your your these certain counts are, are down like your CB4. I think it was your counts are really low. And he's like, it looks like you have HIV, not HIV. I, it looks like you actually have AIDS. And so I'm going to go recommend that we don't do this surgery. And he leaves. And so <laughs> and so it's just my and it's me and my mom just sitting there. We both just start crying because now, like, not only is that add another layer of like, scariness we're going how the fuck would would i have gotten that like there's nothing in my life that added up to that and now i'm also thinking my wife and i had been trying to have a baby right right after the wedding and uh now i'm thinking i gotta call my wife and tell her she has to go get checked for aids so i'm just like you know my Jeez. mind's just on a different planet at this point and uh the oncologist came in saw my mom and i crying it's like what's going on we informed him of what this other guy said and the oncologist was basically just like, kind of lost his mind I was like fuck that guy like he should have never said anything like that to you. I don't know who the fuck he, like, he lost all of his like, you know, like professionalism. And so my but wife good tried, in that moment, good. you wanted him to be pissed off, right? Well, it was no doubt. And, uh, and, and, and there's a full circle to that at the end of this story. Uh, and then, uh, my wife had me transferred to the university of Chicago medicine downtown, um, where I had to go back and they had to start all the t outside of the surgeries. They had to start all the tests over again. So I'm in there you for a few weeks. Bastard. So I'm down there for a few weeks where like nobody can come visit me because I'm like an hour and 20 minutes away from the suburbs when there's rush hour. And like, it's just like this lonely, like miserable time. And, uh, you know, not knowing what's happening every day, Pray, like praying every night that you have cancer. That way we can get on the road because I'm going, yeah. man, if they, if they would have found this in December, it's February by now almost. I'm going, 
I'd be a month and a half into chemo already. Like, let's go find this. And like the craziest thoughts. And, uh, and then finally, uh, they did this surgery here and then they cut me open here, uh, in the same surgery. Cause they didn't get enough out of here. They had to go into my chest, right into my lung. And, uh, then they sent me home from the hospital and put me on pneumonia medicine. Cause I still had pneumonia and, uh, I got home and, uh, the pneumonia was was way worse at home. I'm coughing until I puke like every every hour of every day, and I'm um, home for about a week and a half. And uh, then I get this huge crazy rash on my leg because of the pneumonia medicine. And it says if you get like a rash, like call the doctor. So I call a doctor. He's like, come in, and he's like, we have to do a biopsy of the rash now on your leg. And I'm like, ah. you know. So they do that right there. Uh, two days later, they call me. Uh, maybe a day or two before Valentine's Day, 2013, and uh, they go, "We know what you got. It's uh, it's not cancer. It's vasculitis. That that the rash on my leg, that biopsy was what was able to finally confirm it. After all the seven other biopsies I got, and he explains to me that I have a certain form of vasculitis called Churg-Strauss syndrome, and basically, uh, it's an inflammation of your blood vessels that affects your organs. For me, it was affecting my lungs." So blood wasn't flowing through my left lung properly, which caused a mass over it, which caused the rest of my lymph nodes just to whack out and light up on the PET scan. And uh, he gave me 60 milligrams of prednisone steroids. I picked him up at eight in the morning. I took him at noon that day. By uh, five o'clock that night, I came home and uh, I was probably about 85% back to normal. Like my wife just like couldn't believe how I left that morning to where I was after just the first three pills. And uh, three days later, 100%. I, I'm sure my body was still recovering, but physically and mentally, 100% back to normal was was all good. Within three weeks, I was back at the gym working out. And and uh, um, as of right now, as of two days ago, I am down to one milligram of steroids a day. And as of July 5th, they're finally gone for the first time in eight years. That's and I'll awesome. Be, I'll be medicine free. I've been in remission, you know, knock on wood. But uh the funny story, sort of the full circle, is when my wife got pregnant um, with uh, with my with my son. Yeah, with my with my first one, uh, she uh, she had something wrong with her with her one of her blood counts, and we had to go see an oncologist. And they were like, "It's not a cancer thing, but we have to send you there to rule something out. Like, don't panic." And it was nothing like that for her, thank God. But uh, we go to see the oncologist, and it's the first oncologist that was telling me about my Hodgkins, and I hadn't seen him since because I got transferred hospitals. And, uh, and he's like, Vince, man, I've thought about you over the years, like so many times wondering what the hell ever happened. Cause he never got to find out how oh, this wow. story ended. And so I got to tell him and he's like, Fuck, you, you told know. him you had AIDS. It's, <laughs> no, not, yeah, not, not, not that guy. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. uh, but he did tell me, he goes, do you remember that, that thoracic surgeon? I go, yeah. He goes, he didn't work here anymore after that week. And, uh, he got fired for, uh, for the incident. He couldn't, he couldn't say those words out loud to me because he couldn't divulge that, but, uh, that thoracic surgeon got fired and thoracic surgeons are not like overly common. So I guess like getting fired from that is like, uh, that guy's most likely not working in Illinois. He probably had to go to some small town, um, after that, but, uh, he got fired for it. So, well, he kind of deserves it. You know what yeah. I mean? That's a really horrible thing he did to you. And dude, but that that's great. I'm so happy for you that come July 5th, you won't have to be taking any medication anymore. And what a relief. I wonder if when they told you, hey, it's not cancer, here's what it is, 
your mindset changed to the point where, yeah, I believe after a couple of rounds of steroids, you felt 85% better. Even no though your body probably wasn't even near 85%, your mind was right where it needed to be. It was totally, yeah. My mind was great. Just like, I just remember hearing that, like, what? Wow. Like, after everything we just kept hearing, I I mean, I remember vividly being out to lunch with my parents when, uh, when I got the call about the PET scan, lighting up all four parts of my body, and they're telling me it's probably stage three or four. And I had to like... I was like trying to keep like, you know, keep face on the phone, like, okay, thank you, you know, and like you hang up the phone. And I remember like, you know, telling them like it, it stays three or four. And uh, I just remember like everyone like kind of like put on the game face. And then uh, my wife and I went to go get in our car and my parents walked to theirs. And I just remember watching my dad, like right before you got in the car, I just watched him like break down on his way in the car. And you're like, you just see shit like that. And you're like, man, yeah. like damn dude yeah but they must have been absolutely like as much as crushing as all that was it's the moment you know you're better that yeah. had to feel incredible did they th- people throw a party for you i hope i hope you really celebrated we, and we did it up a little bit we did celebrate we uh uh we booked tickets to vegas uh pretty fast after that and the whole family went out there and we had a great celebration about it and you know felt felt really really good and uh about uh was it two years later uh my son was born and then my daughter a few years after that so uh there's a slight delay in life and, uh, you know, but, uh, it probably makes you more grateful though for life now. Right. Yeah, it, it, it definitely did. I think we were talking about this at, um, at the, that night of like, I was, I was ready to hang up comedy at that point. It was 2012. I'd, I'd been on the road for eight years or whatever it was at that point. And, uh, I was just kind of like, you know, I've missed a lot of holidays. I missed a lot of birthdays and stuff. Like as, as much as I loved comedy, was it like, if, if I, cashed in now and this was over now like was that worth it for to you know for that and, um i was getting ready to quit and, and uh people were like sending me messages like I, I never told anybody i was getting ready to quit but people sent me all these messages like hey vince you've made people feel good for so many years like you deserve someone like making you you deserve to feel good you deserve a break like you know we we need we still need your laughs out there please get better soon and they were like people were like building up my comedy and like it that was like a, the start of a, of a transformation, I guess, of like uh, not chasing the, the, the dangling carrot anymore, you know, not not caring so much about the, the external factors and more just going like, uh, yeah, I, I want to do what I do. I want to do it the way I like it. I want to I want you know, it, it really shifted from like this is my show to this is your show. Like I'm I'm here for you. And before I had too much of an ego to say that. And now it's like, no, I'm here for you. You, you came out. I want to make you, I want to make you feel good because uh, people helped lift me up at a, a time I needed it. So dude, that's great, man. What a, what a great feeling. And it's liberating to be able to be like, I don't care about the outcomes. I'm just going to enjoy the ride right now. And I think that's yep. more people need to have that mindset, dude. Thanks for sharing that Vince. All right, let's get to five good ones. All right. I like to good. ask uh, five uh, questions that are kind of a little random here, but it's a fun little segment I've been doing. Question number one is uh, what has been your favorite moment? I know it's tough to pick one sometimes, but what has been your favorite moment in your comedy career? Favorite moment of my comedy career? Um, it's a great question. I think uh, if I'm going to pick one, I'm sure you're like, like you, I'm sure you have a bunch. If I'm going to pick one, um, a couple years back in 2019, I got picked to do uh, Gilda's Laugh Fest, uh, Best of the Midwest Showcase, uh, you know, big, large festival in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, they, they select, you know, six to eight comics to uh, to be a part of that. And you come in and you compete and you do a few shows and uh, and uh, they crown a winner of it. And I, I ended up winning it that year. And it 
it was, you know, I've, I've lost like plenty of contests. I've, I've lost a lot of festivals and stuff over the years. And it was just one of those where like, I truly went into that night, like not caring about the outcome, even though I feel like that sometimes I, you still get drawn to it. I went into that fully like supportive. I just wanted to have fun, just felt happy to be involved. And, uh, and I, I ended up winning and it just felt like, uh, like a strong accomplishment, just, just something good, you know, just can't describe why that one out of all nights, but just something about that just felt amazing to me. And that was 2019? 2019, yeah. Yeah. See, that is a great competition, a great honor, a great festival. I did it in 2018 and lost. So thanks for rubbing that in. Um, <laughs> thanks, Vince. I really appreciate that. I'm just with you. No, yeah, I did it the year before. It's great. It's a great, uh, it's a great festival. Yeah. Uh, great comedians. I had such a blast that whole uh, weekend doing shows there. So that's a good one, bud. I feel like you're you're rubbing in a little bit, but that's all right. All right, number two, question number deuce. If you could have any superpower, maybe you might be like health, but if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Ah, superpower. Oh, man. Reading minds. That's a good one. Reading yeah. minds. I'm way I'm way too self-conscious and self-aware. Sometimes I would just like to know what other people are thinking so I don't gotta fill in my life like a mad lib you know, for them all the time, you know? Yeah. Makes being charming a lot easier too, to know sure what people want to hear. <laughs> yeah. I no, think that one. Yeah. Like, Hey, I'm never going to book you like, Oh, good. Good to know that now, you know, versus me trying for the next year and a half and figuring it out later. So sweet time saver. Yeah. It yep. really is what a time saver being able to be, read minds would be. Yeah. That's a good one. All right. Question number three, what are you getting on your pizza? What are your pizza toppings? Pizza toppings. I'm a, I'm a pepperoni, sausage, green pepper, mushroom, and onion. All right. I like the first two a lot. Green pepper, I could go here or there with depending on uh, mushroom. I'm not too big a fan of. But let me let me say this, man. This is for everybody. I did a great show over the weekend. Shout out to the Renwick Mansion in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, everyone who's involved, uh, Dane and his wife, Sarah, uh, Chris uh, Schlitling, um, who's going to be on the podcast soon. That guy's great. They ordered pizzas. And I think if you're ordering pizzas for a group setting, you need to have one that's plain cheese. No doubt. Now, I know that's kind of a basic bitch pizza, but I feel like you, you need to think group mentality. They had one with all sorts of crazy stuff on it that I'm like, I'm not touching any of that. The other one was barbecue chicken, which I do like, but there was some onions on there that were just not good. Okay. I remember thinking, I'm like, you got to get one that's, you got, it's, I'm calling it the Kevin McAllister rule. Yeah. Where you need to have one because they didn't take anyone's order. They just came back and you can't complain. Because it's no. free pizza. You're a dick yeah. if you complain. But you and I both have kids. And so we know that rule even more so than anything else. Like, because you order pizza, what, what do you make sure that the kids have? Cheese. Always. The, have, always. The Kevin McAllister rule. You have to have one plain cheese pizza. Think of that scene in Home Alone, everyone. Okay. Number four, also kind of a loaded question. If you could have a new law, it could be serious, it could be silly, a new law for your town, this state, the whole country, whatever, what would your new law be? Man. I wish I could think of something funny, but I can't because I'm not a good comedian. So let me go serious <laughs> here. <laughs> let me go serious. I'll write a bit about it later. I uh I feel like I feel like it would be something in in like uh in an anti-bullying format. Something, something to do with with I, I despise bullying uh, more, probably more than 
anything else. I, I hate it, whether it's verbal or physical, but uh, it'd, be, it'd be something, be some heavier consequences uh, surrounding that or yeah, probably have your consequences surrounding it. Just got to be act. I know bullying is a part of life. We all get bullied, but but hold on, there's a difference though. And I, by the way, I'm with you 100. I think there should be way heavier consequences. Whenever I see some video being passed around of some poor kid getting bullied, it makes me absolutely disgusted. It makes me sick. Right? I, but I, I want listeners to know because every now and then you hear some people being like, "Hey, bullying's a part of life." No, 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 no. There's difference between bullying and busting someone's chops. Yes. Right? Busting, you know, whatever. Because Everyone growing up has some friends that you pick on here or there, but they're your friends. And there's kind of like an understanding. Bullying is when you're picking on someone that you don't hang out with, you don't talk to, you would never invite them out to anything. They're not coming to your birthday party. And you're purposely, intentionally going out of your way to make their life miserable. That's bullying. That's That shit needs to go. No one's saying, hey, you know, don't call your friend, you know, I don't know, pussy or something like that. If he's your buddy and you're hanging out playing a video game, that's not bullying. That's like regular friend stuff. I'm talking about the straight up, like this video I saw recently, it made me absolutely sick. This kid was trying to get away from these people and it was mostly girls, which kind of threw me for, threw me off a little bit. Maybe I'm being sexist. Hey, girls could be asshole bullies too, I guess. And they were like tormenting this poor kid and, and throwing shit at him and trying to hit him. And they were clearly bigger and even looked older and he's trying to get away. So he's crossing a street and he gets hit by a car. Oh. And I don't know. I didn't find out if he was okay, but it made me, dude, it, oh man, I just want to like find the parents and be like, how did you fuck up so badly that yeah. you raised such a piece of shit kid? Uh, I, I watched this one video of a, of a guy, like an Eagles game or something. A young guy, like big muscles, like arguing with a standing up, arguing with a guy in the row behind him who's probably about 65 years old. The guy's sitting and this this young kid just out of nowhere just punches him twice in the face. And you just see the blood like spurt and they have like an after picture of the guy later. And you're just like, what? who are you, you piece of shit? And and, and I'll qualify this as a, as a total hypocrite. I. I, I, I bullied when I was younger, not 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 to a, a bad degree, but I've, I I'm not a you know, above it. We I, I participated in that and heavily regret anybody I ever like gave a hard. I was more uh, verbal because I'm not a physical guy, but uh, anybody I ever like made fun of too much for the wrong reasons. Like it's not good. So I, I don't want to just qualify. Like I know I'm not a saint, but uh, yeah, I did a little bit of that to this one kid, and I remember we stopped though. We were pretty shitty to this one kid that was. Like this Bulgarian immigrant kid in our class, and he was the smelly kid, and he just didn't know about deodorant because it was a cultural thing. And I remember us going yeah. hard after him, and then we kind of all wisened up a little bit. But yeah, I'm, you know, we, it's, we, uh, youth, it's shitty. Youth is a learning moment, but you should be able to learn from it. That's why there needs to be heavier consequences because the first time you do it, you would be like, "Oh shit, that's pretty serious. Don't do it again." Like that's why I'm in I'm in favor because yeah, everybody gets scared straight a little bit, and that would that would help. In terms of that, because people shouldn't grow up in fear of showing up somewhere because of something that I, I can't stand that at all. Like, I, I'm sure I don't know if you run into like awkward people after shows, um, you know, just just people who you could just tell or just don't fit in. So, you know, they just kind of they just chat with you for a while and you're going like, this isn't anybody I'd hang out with. This is anybody I normally talk to. But I I'll make it a point to sit there and make make them feel like the, the life of the party for a night. Just because I try to. Yeah, they probably haven't had that a lot in their life and it's like man like if that's the very least i can do for you is give you all of my attention because you you know you came out here and and gave me some of yours like so uh i I try and i try and be a better person for it now 
You're a good man, Charlie Brown. All right, question number five, dream vacation. What is it? So I took it. I took my dream vacation. Uh, so I might have to think of another one for your answer, but my wife and I... No, let's uh, just tell me the one you took, man. We, this is we, great. Uh, honeymoon, um, one year after uh, I was... Uh, was okay because we didn't take we were supposed to take our honeymoon also that December when I got sick and so we had to delay it for a year but uh oh, wow. we, went, we spent uh 11 or 12 days in uh Tahiti and Bora Bora in one of those huts over the water like you saw in couples retreat wow dude that's yeah. fantastic I um my stepmom had been to Bora Bora when she was like dating my dad and I remember her going with a few friends or something like that when they like just started dating or something like that. And I thought it was a made up place. I thought Bora Bora was like something <laughs> out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I'm like, you didn't go to Bora Bora. I was like eight laughing at her or something like that. That's incredible, man. Good on you, dude. Yeah. And this is kind of a, that's funny. You mentioned couples retreat because I want to slide into, I ended on the podcast on a, a quick game of fuck, Mary kill. Okay. Something I started doing a while ago, like during the pandemic, just to be silly with it. And I, because of your name, Vince, I decided to do a Vince connection. Couples Retreat was a Vince Vaughn movie. All right. So your three women I chose are all Vince Vaughn love interests from various Vince Vaughn movies. All right. Uh, I don't know if you're a Vince Vaughn fan, Vince Carone. Yeah, I think he's very funny. Very funny, dude. Good guy, too. I've, uh, he was actually my boss when I my first job in Los Angeles. He was the executive producer of Sullivan and Son, and I was a stand-in on that show. Oh, so I've had cool. um, the pleasure of hanging out with him a few times. A really cool guy. Anyhow, here's the picks. We're going from the breakup, Jennifer Aniston. All right. Number two, from Couples Retreat. No, not from Couples Retreat. I'm sorry. From, um, uh, I'm blanking. Uh, from uh, the other one, the one, uh, damn it, this is so bad. Right Reese now, Witherspoon? Everyone. Yes. Thank you. Reese Witherspoon from Four Christmases. All right. I don't know why I was blanking. Uh, and then from Wedding Crashers, Isla Fisher. All right. Well, the fuck one's easy um, because uh, I'm going with Jennifer Aniston for that one. Um, Good choice. Because she was one of the reasons I wanted to be famous because I'm like, man, hopefully I can like, you know, meet her one day and just the, the stars a lie. You know, so I was like, that was one reason why I wanted to shoot for Hollywood uh, as far as I got. I was an extra, not to cut you off, Vince. I'm sorry about that. I was an extra on the breakup and I got within five feet of her. Cause I had to walk across on a scene that was, it's in the deleted scenes actually. And, uh, I bought the DVD just for that. <laughs> and I had to cut across off of her turning around. So I got with about five or six feet of her phenomenal. Like you're almost, Done, yeah. I remember looking at me like, that's not a real, no one looks like that. That's <laughs> just not a real, I mean, and there's some women who are like clearly like hotter than her, I'd say, but just in person, Seeing any like one of those top movie stars in person is just a little like get the fuck out of here. You're not real, dude. Yeah, she's yeah th- that's how, that's how it feels for sure. She had too too perfect. Um, Mary, I would go with uh, Reese Witherspoon, and uh, um, she's a good parent. It seems like she's fun. I follow her on Instagram. I like I like her videos. I like her normal life. I'm like oh, okay, that yeah okay. Uh, I never thought about marrying her until you met. You brought it up, but uh, and you could have sex with someone you marry. Clearly, yeah, so you're, for sure. You, you get the fuck part too. And uh, it, in in kill would be would be Isla Fisher because uh, I mean that that's what's left. And uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't know a whole lot about her. I, I saw her in Wedding Crashers. I know she was in some weird shopping movie after that. And I don't really know what happened to her after that. So. Uh, you know, one hit wonder like eh, process we, elimination. We could do without you. Yeah. The thing I'll, I, in wedding crasher, she plays like a fun character, but there's a scene where 
you know, I was like 20 when Wedding Crashers came out, I think. And I remember seeing it opening weekend. That was like the height of that whole, yeah. you know, Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell, the Wilson brothers, the frat pack. There you go. And there's a scene where it's like, oh, she's topless. But then as I later on, I'm like, oh, wait, that's not her. That was a body double. Yeah. So I was a little bit like, mm, bummer. I yeah. thought those were her actual boobs. Yeah. Now that they're not, I kind of like her a little less. Yeah. What are you hiding? You got weird nips? What's going on, Isla? Um, I got weird nips too. So I, I we'd too. probably bond over that maybe. So who knows? Uh, good choices though, my man. Good choices. Dude, what about uh, what about you? If I throw it back your way, throw it back my way. I, I think I. Sw- you can't pick. See, mine. I think I, I I kill the same person. I kill Isla, but I might switch <laughs> it. I might marry Jennifer Aniston. That was a tough one. That was a tough one. Like, do I want her forever for a night? No, and you I'm know like- what? I kind of I'm. Uh, I go back. I go back. Reese Witherspoon. I feel like. Someone you could age well with because I feel like I'm thinking about the sex. I think yeah. she'd keep it spicy. You know what I mean? Also, she has children. Jennifer Aniston, I'm 99% sure, does not have children. Yeah. That was apparently one of the reasons her and Brad Pitt broke up. He wanted to have a family, and she's like, I want to keep this body tight. Yeah. Respect, respect <laughs> yeah, to both ends. Yeah. But now that I have children, I love having children. So I think I'd want to go the reason. So I agree with you, Vince. I can't even dis- I can't even dispute or argue with you. Um, but buddy, man, thanks for being on the podcast, opening up about the health scare. It's something that I think uh, listeners would really appreciate how precious life is. You know what I mean? And uh, how thankful we should be because I know you know life's hard on different and all sorts of different reasons. Life is hard, and yeah. you know um, there's a lot of injustice in the world and all that. And it's you can't deny that. But I still think at the end of the day. If you're alive, you are 100% lucky, and we should all be grateful. No doubt about that, man. I appreciate you having me. I wanted to come on for a long time, so I'm glad we were able to make it work. Hell yeah, dude. I'm glad I've had you on, man. And tell everyone where they could find your stuff and where they should be you know, checking out your albums and all that stuff. So direct them wherever they should be following you. Yeah, check it out. Sign up for my mailing list at uh, VinceCarone.com. It's the easiest way to, to get in touch with all the other pieces. But uh, I'm on all forms of social media, pretty much everything uh, – Everything, yeah, everything a thirty-eight-year-old should be at. I'm not, on, I'm not on Snapchat and TikTok and all that. I probably should be. I just don't understand how they work. So I do. I'll explain uh, TikTok to you. Okay, perfect. Yeah, you help. You gotta help me with the video thing. So I will. I'm on, I'm on YouTube. I've got about uh, uh, an eighth of Joe's followers on uh, on YouTube. So uh, you gotta help. We'll me help out that, that too. Everyone, subscribe to Vince's channel. Yeah, subscribe there. Find me uh, Instagram. Everything uh, at Vince Crone on all of them. So uh, I got the original on all of them. OG. Good man. Good man. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Joe Kilgallen podcast, a.k.a. Kilgallen's Pub. Be sure to check out the Patreon. Uh, just uploading a video tonight for that. So uh, thanks to all the Patreon subscribers. You get a lot of bonus content there. Content there. Sorry, I had like a weird little lisp for a second. And uh, all sorts of other fun stuff. Go back to check out previous episodes. Can't thank you guys enough for supporting my comedy. You're all the best. Cheers. <laughs>